It's November 18th, 2014. I'm in my husband Aaron's hospice bed, crawled up and tucked in close to him in what used to be our spare bedroom. Aaron is dying. The cancer is eating away at his brain. He spends most of his time sleeping, and when he's awake, he stares off past me like there's something else capturing his attention. Tonight, he looked at me. Probably because I was crying and also because I dyed my hair purple, which was probably a mistake. I was in the hardest days of my life. But they were also beautiful in a way. And I knew that my brain might try to block them out. So I set about trying to document all of it. With my iPhone. In a room with fans running and all kinds of medical equipment. I had just had a message from a friend, Jamie. Her one-year-old nephew was also dying, and she had made a request of our little family, a request that I needed to make of Aaron. You're about to hear that request, but it's going to be hard to hear, so just put your listening ears on. I'm going to ask you a question. Remember when I was telling you about my friend Jamie and her nephew is dying and he's just a little tiny baby. She wanted to know if you'll look out for him. Of course. You'll take care of him in the next world. I knew you would. He's going to need a good, a good man to take care of him. And you're the baby whisperer. His name's Bryce. And he'll look out for our baby, too. Best. You do great. Did you get that? I know, it was hard to hear. Aaron said yes, he would look out for Bryce. And yes, he would look out for the baby we had miscarried the month before. He would do his best. Aaron looked at me and said yes. Then he put his arms up, like he was holding a child in each of them. He gave a kiss to the top of each little ghost of a head, and he said not to worry. He'd be with that baby soon, too. They would party together and watch me pick my nose, so would I please stop doing that? Two days later, Aaron would lose consciousness for the last time. He would die on November 25th, and the day after that, so would Bryce. I'm Nora, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. The show where we encourage people to give honest answers to the question, how are you? For many of us, death is scary and mysterious. It was for me, too, until I saw it up close. Watching my husband die sucked out my fear of death. Not like, yeah, I can't wait to die. It's going to be a blast. But at least seeing it in person, I knew it was not a finality. It was an evolution. When Aaron entered hospice, only a few weeks before I recorded that moment in bed with him, the hospice nurses gave me a ton of morphine for him, and also a booklet with a poem by Henry Van Dyke called Gone From My Sight. It's a poem about death, with a ship as a metaphor for our loved ones. 
the ship sails off. And as it dips over the horizon, we think it is gone. But it's not. And just at the moment when someone says, there, she is gone. There are other eyes watching her coming and other voices ready to take up the glad shout. Here she comes. And that is dying. That poem stuck with me. And so did that experience of being in the in-between with Aaron, watching his ship get smaller, wondering where it was going. This episode is about that in-between, the middle place between life and death, and the people who are there to witness it. People like Heather, who's a hospice nurse in the Twin Cities. She does what all of those people did for my husband and our family. She shows up at the end of someone's life, in all that chaos and fear, with peace and order, in the form of checklists and binders and medical supplies. Hospice care is what happens at the end of a terminal illness. It's not about curing you or making you better. It's just about making the most of the time you have left. It's about dying as best you can. And along with all the stuff they bring, hospice workers bring an intimate experience with death that most of us don't have, at least yet. And most of us hear hospice worker and think... Oh my gosh, that must be the hardest job ever. Like, hospice nurses are angels. <laughs> I have said that. Yeah, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. I, I felt like this immense yeah. love, honestly, for mm-hmm. every yeah. person who came into my house. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I mean, I am like deeply still mm-hmm. like in love with yeah. the woman who like led our Aaron's hospice team. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, maybe we can be friends. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really like, like, I don't think so. so. There are boundaries here. Yeah. Um, I was like, yeah, but what's your address? (laughs) How can I call you? When people say, oh, she's an angel, they mean, oh, she's a really great person. She's selfless. And Heather is. But it's interesting to think of the other definition of angel here what many religions call these beings that are intermediaries between Earth and whatever happens next or whatever came before. And Heather, who has worked in labor and delivery, oncology, the burn ward, and now hospice, has borne witness to probably hundreds, if not thousands, of such transitions. And maybe those transitions aren't all that different. You know, it's like awe. And I think more people have seen uh, babies born than people die. But there is a very similar moment, like right after the birth, and you're sort of waiting for the baby to cry. And there's this, like, sense of new life and awe. And I think that happens at the time of death as well. And there's this sense of something new is happening. and And we can't really imagine it. We can't really see how it's going to unfold, but it's here. Awe, a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear or wonder. Respect for this thing that we know happens, but fear and wonder because we don't know what happens. And for 99% of our lives, most of us don't really think about it. We actively ignore it. 
We take extraordinary measures to never, ever, ever confront it. I think in general, in our society, people are afraid of dying. We don't talk about it and we don't, we don't want to see it. I mean, it's kind of one of those messy things that we'd rather kind of ignore. Like if a family kind of gets together and they have never really talked about dying before, like what that's going to feel like or what's that going to look like. And not that we can ever be prepared for somebody's death, but I think there can be meaning that comes from that. And I think that there are places that we can point to that are really, really sacred and beautiful in that sort of journey. Part of it has been practice for me. And by practice, I mean, you know, just being a witness and being open to the moment, being present. I used to describe it as the moment when, like, God and a soul are, like, dancing around the room. But it isn't always, like, a dance. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's a stillness. There is a stillness that overcomes the room and those are, that are there, um, even just for a brief moment. Because sometimes then there's yelling and screaming and all sorts of emoting, um, but, you know, we get to kind of talk about, oh, they're here now, and I see them, and I think they see me, and then... The alternative then is, you know, they're, they're absent, they're gone. There's no recognition. And so looking at it like this is sort of a middle place of um, having one foot kind of here in reality on this earth and having one foot in the next place where you get to have both kind of in and out. And I think it's maybe the body's way of preparing us for the final kind of, this is it. Because there is some back and forth, and there is breathing, and then there's periods of, you know, what we call apnea, which is no breathing. And sometimes that's 30 or 40 seconds. <gasps> And then the person takes a breath again. And I think being together and sort of witnessing that is sacred. Because that is what is, I think, universal. Like, death means <laughs> no more breathing, <laughs> I think. And I think that is the one thing that I can point to and say, it's happening, you know, and, and now we... Now we go on. Now we figure out what to do next. And it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place to be.
that place, that middle place, is so different from the rest of our adult lives. It's a massive shift from who we were as we wait for whatever happens next. I think it becomes more and more clear what really matters. And oftentimes it's like, you know, things like, I want the dog to be in bed with me, or I want to move over to this window so I can see this this tree for the last time, or I want to go outside and have a cigarette. <laughs> so generally people want to be comfortable. But what is that going to mean in that last day that you're conscious? You know, what are you going to ask for? For Aaron, it was to sit in bed and eat a pizza and watch bad TV with me. It was to wait until the two of us were alone, after our toddler kissed him goodbye, cuddled together, waiting. It never goes as scripted. I mean, like, we would love for it to be, you know, predictable that way. And I think, you know, sometimes even patients are like, why is it so hard to die? You know, like, I am ready. My family is exhausted. Like, we've all done this for a long time. And and then in, in those times, I kind of talk about it like it's sort of like labor. You know, like there are times to push and there are times to wait. And there are times to breathe and there are times to kind of pause. This is the moment we're afraid of. This is the moment we worry over our entire lives. What will it be like? Will I be scared? Brave? Funny? Will I be ready? Will it hurt? You know, if we're present and able to be kind of open to the moments, there are sacred sacred places that we can point to later and say, oh yeah, that was a really beautiful moment. That was a really beautiful place. One example that I often talk about is... Um, an old crusty uh, farmer from the middle of North Dakota. His name was Alan, and he was definitely the first patient that I ever loved as, you know, like I just fell in love with him, and I loved his family, and I spent lots of time with him. And um, when he was in hospice, he had a terrible kind of cancer that actually went very quickly for him. He struggled and really had lots of regrets and resistance to the idea of dying. He just, he wanted to live. And I think he always thought that he had time um, to sort of uh, fix some of the things or some of the regrets that he had that he wished he had done differently. And he talked a lot about his faith and how most Sunday mornings he was in the field. You know, he was either planting or harvesting, working with the dirt, you know, getting dirty. And he regretted that he hadn't been going to church on Sundays. Um, as he was getting closer to the end of his death, I was working the night shift, and he was often awake at night feeling really agitated, had a lot of um, what we call terminal restlessness, and was just really not able to rest and kept talking about these regrets that he had. And uh, one night I was walking in from the parking ramp and I kind of kicked a rock on the sidewalk. And for some reason I thought, oh, I should give this to Alan. I feel like Alan maybe needs this rock. <laughs> so I went in for my shift and I 
went into his room and I was like, Alan, I have this great gift that I found for you. And it was a small rock, kind of the size of a like a small potato. It was very like smooth and rounded edges. And I handed it to him and he was like, oh. And he just started to cry. And and I said, what is going on? What is this rock bringing up for you? And he said, this is like holding hands with God. And for some reason, some sacred sort of unknown reason, he was um, relaxed and peaceful. And he held that rock until he died. And he um, was able to sort of find a way to maybe have forgiveness for himself and maybe feeling closer to the sacred in whatever way he understands that, he was able to kind of soften and he had a very, very peaceful death. So as a nurse, I get to be present for that and I get to show up and if nothing else, I carry it with me. I'm a witness to it and even just pause in that moment and say, Alan, this is... This is big. You know, this is, this is maybe even holy. My holy moment was that conversation with Aaron. The one where I asked him to watch out for my friend's nephew, and he said yes. That baby boy, Bryce, died the day after Aaron. And I've thought about my conversation with Aaron, about Bryce, and about our dead baby, for a long time since. Aaron and I didn't talk about heaven. But before he died, one hysterical afternoon, I crawled into bed with him and asked him to be everything for me after he died. To be the sky and the trees and the grass and the dirt. And he did what he always did, which was to look at me like I was a raving lunatic, kiss me, and say, of course. We're going to take a break here. Maybe go out and look at the sky and the trees, but not the grass or the dirt because it's January in Minnesota. And we're back. What happens after the middle place? After Aaron's death, our son would stretch his hands to the sky and say, My papa is the clouds. My papa is the air. And I would feel Aaron there, all around us, and know it was true. He'd kept his promise. Maybe the only thing more uncomfortable than talking about death is talking about what we believe happens after death. If you believe in heaven, it's, I guess, an easier one. But if you're not sure, you don't even have the vocabulary to talk about it. The best we can do is really vague or metaphoric. How did you figure out your gift? It it feels more like an uncovering of it. So actually it's very similar to being gay or coming out. This is Sarah Gottfried, and she uses metaphors. Sarah's gift is intuition. Not just, you know, being an insightful person, but having an ability to sense the dead, to communicate with them. In the same way where I, you know, wasn't even out to myself until I was older, it's, and then I look back and I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. And it's, 
it's kind of a very similar but when I when I really realized it probably was when 10 years ago, nine years ago at my uncle's funeral and I could tell that he was there and he was talking to me even though he had died. So um, that was the first time that I really realized it or really couldn't, I couldn't ignore it. He was really teasing me, but in a really loving way. Like I remember staring at his, the urn and, you know, suddenly he was there saying, well, I'm not in there and just kind of giving me a hard time for even for being reverent I think you know he was just more playful kind of guy and it really took me off guard I guess now this seems not weird or outrageous to me at all maybe because I was raised Catholic and we have a saint we can pray to if we lose our keys so how would it be outlandish to be able to talk to a dead person but if you're not Catholic or not that kind of Catholic And this seems too weird or ridiculous for you. Sarah gets that. I actually met her at a book reading of mine, and we got to talking, and she mentioned she can talk to dead people. And I said, well, I got to get to know you. She arrived at our studios visibly nervous. She's a shy person by nature. She's an earnest person in a world full of skeptics. And she works in hospice for a living, though not as a nurse. She's not part of the Psychic Friends Network. This isn't something she makes money off of or really talks about all that much. This is something that came to her when she was young. Something that she's gotten used to over the years. People don't visit me when I'm really begging them to. But it'll be like in the grocery store. It'll be when I'm talking to my wife or when I'm at... Sometimes when I'm with another patient, they'll show up. Just kind of pop in and then and say hi. Like, I, I don't see a, a physical form. I don't see what they're wearing. But I it's more like I can tell that someone's in the room. And the energy is there and the personality is really clear. And so sometimes it feels like an interruption. Not a big one. These visits, these little pop-ins, mean that Sarah's walking around with messages and stories meant for other people. And that it's her job to deliver them. To call a person she knows and say, Hey, can we meet? I have a message from your dead dad. Generally, they're always about how supportive the person who has died is always there, loves them, supports them, doesn't judge them, maybe wants them to be who they really are if they're not kind of living up to that, but is really loving about it. How do people react when you give them these messages? I'm immediately aware of what a profound experience it is for them to hear that. Whereas, you know, before that I'm doubting myself, I'm questioning, you know, am I crazy, am I making this up? I share information that to me I think is, sounds really crazy, it's very personal, and, and then when I share it, it really impacts people. Not all of the contact Sarah has is for relaying messages to people. Sometimes it's more of just an energy that she senses, whether she's out and about in the world or at her job as a hospice massage therapist. For Sarah, it's a comforting thing. So when I walk into someone's home and there's someone dying, and what I feel or sense is, you know, the family is really distraught, but I'm also experiencing sometimes 
this energy that feels really supportive and joyful and loving. And, you know, sometimes I'm really curious about what it would do to our experience of dying if we knew that. And if we were aware of of that sort of love that was there. What would life look like if we could be aware of the love that surrounds us? How much less scary would that be? Because I see people who have died, I know that it's a transition that can be really hard, but that on the other end of that are these this soul that is vibrant and loving and safe. When my friend's husband died, right before he died, he was in hospice, and she walked into the room and he said, everyone, like gesturing in the room, <laughs> I want you to meet Emily. <laughs> And there's no one else in the room. And she's like, this is him leaving. This is him, like, with one foot in this world and one foot in the other. And this is his way of making those introductions before he goes. And it was, like, really comforting to her. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, oh, he's not scared. He has people. Like, he is supported. Like, he's mm-hmm. being loved already. And still so polite, you know. And still so polite. <laughs> Like, you got to meet Emily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sarah explained to me that sometimes she can focus and connect with a person. But more often, the dead person comes to her with a message. And a few months after our interview, she contacted me with a message of my own. A message from Aaron. It took a lot of coordinating, but we finally did it. But that meant Sarah had to come to my house a house with a toddler and two kids and a baby, and sit on my bed, which was the quietest place we could find. And that's where I got my message. He wants me to explain everything. Okay. So I'll do my best. Oh, he wanted me to wear this shirt, which I've never worn in public. Uh, But it's uh, (laughs) a... It says... um, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Yeah. Um, that's so funny. That makes sense. That's very Aaron. Uh, where does he want me to start? So he's in here. I mean, do you feel him? Mm. Yeah. So if you were to guess where he is in here, where would you say? Here. Yeah. Right. He really wants you to know how everything works because he really wants you to be (laughs) informed Uh and aware. And he says it's like you already are, but you're not paying attention to it. And he wants you to know that you can't push him away and that nothing that you do will is ever a betrayal. He says, unless you want to, Unless you need him to not be around for your own growth, Mm -hmm. it's okay for you to say, I need some space. No, I don't want to push him away. I think I'm afraid of losing him, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, having him be further away from me. Mm -hmm. That won't happen. He's already trying to connect with you. I mean, he gets, like, late at night when you're um, up. Mm Mm-hmm. Just up and sleep, yeah. yeah. So he wants that, especially at that time. Mm-hmm. He's there. He's always trying to do little things that are whimsical to try to remind you that he's here. 
Sarah told me that Aaron is here all the time. Even when I'm in the bathroom, which I specifically asked him not to do. I'm just kidding. Aaron hated the bathroom. He would never do that. But he was here while we recorded this podcast. The day that she came to record, he was in the studio with us. And there were three kids and maybe a dog. What it sounded like to me was that they were, like, chasing a ball. Mm-hmm. Two kids you're related to. Mm-hmm. One is who died, your miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And one was Stormtrooper, my new baby. The baby that, at the point that Sarah saw me, was still a pregnancy I hadn't told anyone about. Sarah saw my dead child playing with my unborn child. He wants you to know that, that that's how it works. Like, um, so you were still pregnant, so they were all together. Um, and it happens when we die and then and before we're born. And so that, that that's part of how things work. Aaron knew Stormtrooper. No Stormtrooper. My new baby that I had with another man. And there was that third baby. One, I don't know who it is. Okay. Not a relative. Mm. They were playing. Mm. They were, like, kicking a ball. I don't always get gender or sex, but they all seem like boys. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sorry, I don't know who the third mm-hmm. is. I think I know who it is. Okay. Yeah. You'll take care of me in the next world. I knew you would. He's going to need a good, a good man to take care of him. So, Aaron and Bryce, and our miscarried baby, and the baby I just had with my new love, were all hanging out in the other world together while I recorded a podcast. That is cool. Look, I don't know what happens after we die. If I did, the title of this episode would be Guess What Happens When You Die? Nora Found the Answer. I just know that from the moment I asked Aaron to watch over our baby and watch over Bryce, I believed he would do it. I know that I feel him and my father around me. I know that I still have not stopped picking my nose and they are both disappointed in that. I know that when my father said on his deathbed that we never really leave each other, he meant it. I know that whatever you believe, whether it's that we all reconvene in the sky with wings and harps, or get our own planets together, or come back as little lizards, the most important thing that we can do is here, now. We can do what Sarah and Heather do, and we can do it without it being a job. The thing that is hard and scary. We can stand in the middle with each other, in the uncertainty and in the dark. Not knowing what is next or where our ships are going. Not knowing what it all means. We can make something scary into something sacred.
I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our producer is Hans Buto. It's a life he chose. A special thank you this week to Amy Walensky and Eddie Glenn. A couple of weeks ago, we posed a question to you at the end of one of our shows. It came from a listener who asked, is it okay to not be okay when everyone else is okay? And you all had so much to say, so we made an extra episode with all your answers. You can hear that special episode by texting TERRIBLE8 to 677-677. Data rates, they apply. They apply in every situation, but especially when you're texting for an extra episode. And this week, we have a new question for you. We want to know, what is the thing that keeps you up at night? The next time you find yourself there, in those long, wee hours, lying in the dark, pick up your phone, record your thoughts, and email that voice memo to ttfa at americanpublicmedia.org. We will take your answers and make an episode out of them. You can find us at TTFA Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Talk to us. We love it. We like you. If you haven't already, you should definitely rate the show on iTunes. Somehow, I don't really understand, but it helps people find the show. And if you want to support the show more directly, you can go to our website at ttfa.org and hit the donate button. That will take you to the only place where you can get your very own TTFA t-shirt with our crying eye logo, which is a gift to you when you support the show with a financial contribution and a gift to the world when they see you in it. Our theme song is by Joffrey Wilson. TTFA is a production of APM, American Public Media.